0: Okie dokie now. Uh.
1: March 1st,
2: 2020. What's up? And and, and here we are with another uh, week of Yawa questions and answers, and I will be moderating,
0: potentially
2: mediating for these two. Um, I'm going to help. You're going to read the questions. I'm going to read the questions and help keep us on topic and like moving forward. Uh, Because sometimes these two can uh, have a little bit too much fun and get off track. So here I am to
0: help us. For any of you that don't know, this is Peter Armstrong. He's been on before. He's my buddy and he'll be on again.
2: And he's a doctor of veterinary medicine. And then we're just us. So first question, and this first question is going to be for Peter, since he's our guest, our, um, from Facebook, from Harry Hooper. Our five-month-old drothar has started to eat large amounts of small stones or gravel every time he has let out into the paddock orchard to relieve himself and when out walking off lead in the fields around our property. Is there anything he's deficient in? He has fed Purina Pro Plan puppy food for athletic dogs. Or do you have any suggestions on how to break this habit? We don't want to keep him on lead when walking, etc. Thanks for any advice you can give. So, would you say that there's a deficiency?
1: Typically, or- not a deficiency. So, most of the time, if we do occasionally see that where dogs will eat dirt. So, there is a time when they'll be deficient to they'll eat dirt, but there's really not going to be a lot they're going to get from rocks. So, um, and maybe more of a behavior learn thing. Um, so that may be kicked back to y'all in the training department.
2: <laughs> Just a quick question, though. Is there like a simple blood test or something that they can run to see if there's a deficiency to know if there's something that we potentially need to Not really.
1: Um, I mean, I think he says, right, he's feeding ProPlan. Yeah, ProPlan, so five-month-old. ProPlan is going to be balanced enough that it's going to have all the minerals that, that need to be there for, for him. Um, so it's probably more of a behavioral issue, I would
0: think. So you said minerals, and the only thing that I can think with that would be volume of food. That was something that was brought up to me talking to dog food people is if he's not eating enough
1: dog food or he's eating too much, that could cause the mineral imbalance. Yeah. And then obviously from a health standpoint really discourage that because that's setting us up for a big set of problems if we've got a belly full of rocks
2: yes definitely a belly full of rocks can lead to blockages and other things like that but are not good um but suggestions on how to break this habit is he could potentially be bored and he's just trying to entertain himself uh he's five months old that's typically a good age when dogs are really needing more training um and Uh, something that you can do so that you don't have to have him on leash to keep him away from those situations is work on collar conditioning to recall. That way, if you see him going out, grabbing a rock, even if he's got one in his mouth, you can recall him back to you, take that rock away and redirect his focus to something else. Maybe play some retrieving games. It sounds like he really likes to pick stuff up, carrying them around in his mouth.
0: Let's do that with
2: a bumper or some retrieving toy that isn't going to cause a problem. Even the
0: young puppies that we have like to pick up rocks when available and carry them around. Now, there's a difference between eating all of the rocks inside and picking one up and carrying it around, but it does sound like um, being able to distract him with something else or doing more training or more exercise, something could help with that.
2: Next question, and this is from Instagram from Shrobert.
1: Shrobert. I think Shrobert's Shrobert asked, asked a question yeah. before. Shrobert <laughs> values our information.
2: Um, <laughs> Protective vests for upland hunts in rough country for chucker and pheasants. Do you use them and any issues with overheating, etc., any brand or style recommended?
0: As far as vests go, this is for dogs?
2: I'm going to just answer this because he obviously didn't listen to the question at all. So, yes, we use upland vests for the dogs to protect their chests um, and thick cover. Protects them from, you know, potential barbed wire cuts and tears and lacerations as well. We use Lion Country Supplies bird dog armor. It's uh, more of a chest protector, not necessarily a full-body vest. We don't recommend using a neoprene vest, especially for upland hunting, because yes, the dogs can overheat if you use them, um, especially in warmer
0: conditions. 2020 goals. We'll have a uh, dog vest on our own line. Hashtag goals. Hashtag goals.
2: (laughs) Okay, next question from... Stephen McBride. This is a long one. So so my eight month old female GSP came into heat recently and I've also just got an e-collar for her. Yes, it's a DT Systems collar, Mm -hmm. whoop whoop. Thanks for you guys recommending that brand. I can't tell you how much it's made a difference being able to have her off-leash and having the confidence that she is paying attention and not going to run off. Ivy's doing great with e-collar training when it comes to the come command and checking back in with me when off-leash. The question I have is, I can't seem to get her enthused on retrieving. She seems to just want to hang near me and wanting a treat for coming or staying close. Also, didn't know where to ask this question, so I'm glad you messaged it to us.
0: You you lost me. No.
2: (laughs) It was too long of a question.
0: Too too long, didn't read. Um, But seriously,
1: go ahead, Kat. So why don't I answer?
2: Oh, oh I, I, yes, please, I, I please do. I've like
1: half a dog once. So I think for me, like when I'm doing like retrieving stuff, like getting somewhere undistracted and working on that. Um, so like for me, like as I started with a puppy, right? So start in the hallway and then start with something with zero distractions. That helps me to help those puppies focus. That's probably not good dog training advice, but, uh,
2: no, that's a really great start. Um, I would also recommend, it sounds like you're still utilizing treats, um, with a lot of her training. And if she's collar conditioned and truly collar conditioned, you really don't need those treats to be overlaid with the collar anymore. And if you can remove them from your training session, she's not going to be so directly focused on you looking for that next food reward, um, and when we typically start working with puppies and retrieving, we don't use food rewards and treats at all anymore in training because when that puppy brings a toy back, a retrieving object back. But they're looking for a treat what does that mean that means that bumper is getting spit out of their mouth so they can eat a treat and i would prefer those dogs not want to drop that bumper not want to drop that retrieving toy because if it's a bird i don't want it dropped so i would just remove the treats from your sessions as well since she is collar conditioned to recall now it sounds like and then you um, might be able to get away from that issue altogether
0: the bonus or the caveat this whole situation is anything a dog's doing they're conditioning themselves to And the fact that you're recognizing that this is an issue and putting a stop to it now is going to help make you a better dog trainer down the road. So kudos. Yes. Next question.
2: Next question for Peter from Instagram. mmnesia 18 If I butcher these, I'm sorry. Tell us how to say it. Tell us how to say it. I'll not mess it up in the future. Has there been any negative side effects to the anti-venom vaccines And when is it recommended to give it?
1: Um, So I really like the anti, uh, or most people call it like a rattlesnake vaccination. Um, I really like them for dogs. Um, I don't think they are the cure-all, catch-all, especially like if we get into early spring when there's a lot of um, the snake bites that we get have a lot of venom. But I think they do buy us more time. Um, I think they lessen the severity of the bites. Um, that's what we see in my clinical giving those. And we, we deal with quite a few rattlesnake and copperhead bites. It's going to protect against, um, all North American, um, species of snakes. Um, we probably, if the reactions, you know, if we compare reactions, it probably has a little bit more reactions than, say, a rabies vaccination or a regular distemper parvo vaccination. Um, typically, um, and it's just, I think it's probably technology based. The, the reaction that they have is going to be usually like a local, Slight reaction, not necessarily like an anaphylactic reaction. So most of the problems that we see are related to a um, big lump, uh, be a lump or not even a big lump, but a lot of times we bring those dogs in, drain that abscess, put on some antibiotics and they're fine. So, um, less, still less than 5% or less than 4%. uh, Are going
2: to have a reaction like that
1: to it. Yeah. Um, and then the big thing with that. So I always, it's always timing of year for me. So like, if I give one in December, or say november they're typically six months is the recommendation on those um so we'll usually come back and start them again in march so we'll start pretty quickly um, doing a lot of rattlesnake vaccinations
2: especially here where we're at in texas <laughs> yeah, where so rattlesnakes are more prevalent
1: here really quickly
2: warming up those snakes well, are moving i've i think i've heard maybe i heard incorrectly that you have to do a booster 30 a booster. days later Yep.
1: yep. Okay. so um so if you're on there every six months or or we really even once a year, we'll do just the one. But yeah, for dogs that are starting it, we'll do it. Um, we'll say we did it tomorrow, we'll do it again in 30 days. So, but I think they work. I think they have their place for sure in buying us more time. And I practice in a small rural practice and we'll, um, we get to summertime, we'll, there'll be certain times of year we treat one a day at least. So of bites of bites yeah
2: and yeah. do you ever see i'm gonna ask my own question here because i think this is an interesting and important topic uh do you see the dogs that are coming in have they had the vaccine and do you see benefits from that in reactions um,
1: it really depends um or you're
2: seeing kind of a gamut of a little bit of everything, everything
1: yeah so a lot of times it can be yeah we'll see dogs and a lot of times that dictates um what i do therapy wise right so Plus or minus steroids, plus or minus NSAIDs, um, plus or minus anti-venom. You know, if it's on the leg versus on the face. Um, I would always rather dog it bit on the face than on the leg. Um, just because there's only so much swelling that can happen in the leg, and usually a couple days later we get a lot of necrosis. Sloughing. Yeah. yeah. sloughing necrosis on the leg.
2: Well, I kinda like this trend of Peter questions, so we're gonna go with another one. Sounds good. <laughs> Keep it going from the life of carl on instagram what do you suggest for dry skin
1: um so dry skin's tough right so
2: there can be a lot of things yeah it can be a lot of things
1: if we're talking about dry flaky skin um there can be some uh, metabolic reasons thyroid's a really good reason to have some dry flaky skin um and we'll see that definitely in the short hair breed um or some of the other german breeds um those are can be a problem um, it may just be a time of year. Um, so you may try, you know, moisturizing shampoos or things along those lines may help. Um, those are, you know, just some ideas of that, but I don't typically get too overly concerned. Um, I, I always love probiotics. Um, I think feeding a probiotic when you get to those times of year to try to help get good gut health is so much tied to good, um, skin health. Um, I think there's really some, in, some improvements that can have that dog food if you're feeding us, you know, a suboptimal dog food. Um, And that's a big debate for anybody, but um, dog food can definitely contribute to that. So kind of those are things that I would look at for dry skin.
2: And I also noticed like with our own personal dogs, especially puppies that may have multiple accidents and things like that, over bathing seems to really dry out their coats and Mm -hmm. they'll get a little bit more flaky. So if you can avoid giving baths so frequently, it allows their natural oils and things to help with moisture and conditioning. Just like ladies, we don't like to over... Wash our hair.
1: How often does Ethan have to wash his hair?
2: Probably daily, I don't know.
1: He doesn't have any hair. At least <laughs> twice. At least <laughs> twice daily.
0: Twice daily, right. Twice daily.
2: Okay. Another this is twice. really
0: good wine. It is very
2: good wine. I'm enjoying it. Yes, sir. So, I know this question's been asked in the past, but it's definitely a question that comes up often, so I'm going Last to... Last time we
0: drank Texas beer, now we drink Texas wine.
2: This is a question <laughs> that was asked by two people, so yeah. I feel like it should be hit on again. One was from J underscore Lemke on Instagram, and one was from KPerry5. Do you know Katy Perry? Just asking.
1: Or are you the fifth Katy Perry?
2: That's probably That's it. Probably what it is. So spay before or after the first heat cycle. And also a variation of the question is, when do you recommend spaying, neutering your bird dog? That's
1: a great question so for me. So we talked about this. <laughs> do you even know about this? No. <laughs> um, so we talked about this. I don't know if it was the first video or the second video when we split up our last one. I can't remember uh, either. Watch them both. They're both good. Yeah. Um, but the quick answer would be, uh, my general recommendation on bird dogs is spaying and neutering would be after... 12 to 18 months of age, at least in females, after that first heat cycle. I think there's enough research that shows that that delayed um, spaying and neutering helps with um, development of cartilages, um, specifically ACL or CCL in dogs, um, and and then in, in the bone development. So I think those are really good ideas to to wait. Um, male actually, dogs. I actually
0: talked to a lady today that was talking about a dog's holding their leg up, and I said, I mean, probably, probably ACL, yeah, yeah, probably
1: CCL, yeah
2: and then you also talked about in that video and i think it's a good thing to mention about why yes why waiting but also good reasons too
1: yeah so yeah waiting waiting so a five-year-old female dog has that we're not breeding has no reason to have a reproductive tract so um at that point you know our risk of pyometra unplanned pregnancies all those things are at a greater risk cancers state. cancer well Cancers, there's bigger debate about that. Okay, not that, as
2: much studies well, showing
1: a people that used to be the reason everybody spayed early was that six month age is because everybody, there was one research study that showed that you know if you spayed before that first heat cycle you reduce that risk. So if that's true, right, then we're not we're not getting that benefit, but we can manage mammary tumors a lot easier, I think, than cruciate ruptures. Um, which are very common, and the bad part about cruciate ruptures, is usually the other one's going to rupture within a year. 50% of them will rupture within a year. So it's more of a wear-related injury than, a, than an actual trauma. Like in people, you step wrong and you tear stuff, or you twist yeah. wrong and you tear stuff. Yeah, it, it can just happen. Or you know, if you're really unlucky, it happens like a week before pheasant season opens, and then your dog's down for the year, so...
2: And that is a really good segue into the next question that somebody wanted to ask. I did a
1: segue not on purpose. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well, and I'm also moderating this. So oh, I'm oh,
1: going strong. to this question. So it's you, not me. Yeah. Okay. Kind of. It's me.
2: <laughs> on point Motorsports. any tips to avoid knee tears, any over the counter stuff like glucosamine to help?
1: Um, so any glucosamine chondroitin, you're never gonna go wrong with it. You can never give a dog enough glucosamine chondroitin. So um I think those are great products. Um I'm drawing a blank on the brand that we sell at the clinic. But I mean they're um really, really good products out there, I think that you can do. I'm not a big fan of the diet based um where they put the glucosamine chondroitin unless those products um, so most products, if they have, say they have glucosamine control, like a dog food <laughs> specifically, product is, there's very, very few. Of them. unless that product's put on after the cooking process, yeah. the cooking process kills that. Um, yep. so I would rather give it as a treat, um, or as some kind of supplement, like a supplement, yeah, for sure. But I, you're never going to give too much of that. That's always going to help support good bone health. So,
2: as well as waiting to spay or for neuter sure. yep. until
0: older. So what's the, the, the terminology for you get? A high enough dosage that it is really beneficial. What is what is that? There's a term for that. There's something. It's called... Um, like a uh, threshold, maybe? What was the glucose and It would be...
1: Can we phone a friend? <laughs> we need, we need a, you're the friend I would phone.
0: Um, so there's like supportive care, and then there would be... Therapeutic? Therapeutic. That's therapeutic the levels. See. Therapeutic levels. I phone my and, own friend. Yes, and you, you can't get a therapeutic level out of the dog food unless the dog is eating more dog food than what
1: it would need. Um, it just, depends just, on the dog food. But like I said, there's like count them on one hand the number of dog foods, and they're really expensive. So I, you'll get a lot better um, if you're using therapeutic, using a, a supplement that is at a therapeutic level. Yeah. Yeah. Great.
2: Well, <laughs> I think we're gonna throw a training question in here.
1: I don't know anything about that.
2: I'm giving you a break so you can taste some more wine. Thanks. From Stoke Ventures, which this was also a common theme of questions, so I'm shooting your question out here, but there were others that were very similar. Do you recommend using the Easy Lead on puppies, and if so, how young?
0: Great question. Um, Yes and no. So, with the majority of the dogs that we work with, we're looking at hunting dogs, and a big thing that we want to see out of hunting dogs is independence in the field if they are independent ready to hunt willing to hunt then they can start working on healing and on average for us we start dogs in the vicinity of five to six months with an easy lead Um, usually not before then unless you've got a special case a real wild child
2: but most of these puppies that are under five six months old are not so big and strong that even if they are pulling pretty consistently like are not going to be so hard to manage um
0: five to six months is pretty typical. yes yes so great That's question
2: another question from CDN blue they signed their question canadian blue so appreciate that from instagram are you attending any canadian sports shows this year
0: well, haven't been asked to any
1: Canadian sports shows.
2: But if you'd like to invite us to one, we'd be happy to go. Yep. I'd like to
1: love to go, to especially like in the summertime or something. <laughs> yeah. You no, know, leave the Texas July. heat. Yeah, that'd be great. July, yeah. right? Any July right shows? in
0: between your, your, your end of winter and start of winter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, it'd be great.
2: Okay, <laughs> next question. This is a good, good one. one. Who's your mortgage guy? If you don't have access to pigeons, bird launchers, what's another way to train woe?
0: Pigeons and bird launchers? Hang on, who's your
1: mortgage guys' name?
2: That's the Instagram <laughs> tag. Oh,
1: who's, your, who's your mortgage guy? It's like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Shout out to Prime West Mortgage. They're like, it's this place. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry.
2: So I I want to talk about why we end up using bird launchers, pigeon launchers because timing is really important when you're teaching a puppy to point and you need to have control over the flush of the bird. What we're trying to do is get that puppy to instinctually and naturally want to hold point longer and longer and longer. And the way that you do that is by making them think that the first time they scented that bird and approached that bird, they over pressured it. That way they're going to be more cautious the next time they encounter that scent. And if you have that remote launch of that bird, you're showing them that, boom, you smelled that, that bird launched. So be more careful next time. And then you can hold that launch longer and longer and longer. If you don't have an electronic launcher, that makes that timing and that process much more difficult to recreate It doesn't allow your puppy to naturally and instinctually learn that. If you're using a check cord, then you are physically restraining them. And then they're just waiting for that pressure to stop them instead of them doing it on their own. Um, There are mechanical releases, foot releases, string releases as well. Again, those are difficult because you either have to approach the bird to get it to flush with the foot release traps. And, uh, with young puppies, you're not going to have that kind of time. And the string release, again, you're going to either have to have somebody standing right next to your bird, which your puppy's going to run right up to them and be like, Hey, what you doing out here in the field? Um, and so they're a big distraction to have them out there, or you're going to have to try and know where your string is so that you can be able to quick grab it and release it when your puppy approaches. So they can make timing really difficult in those situations. Uh, but one way if you don't have those items is wild birds. Puppies aren't gonna be able to overpressure or catch wild birds. And we don't want them to either, um, to catch them either because if they catch them, then they're just rewarding themselves for not pointing.
0: Yeah, so, so back in the day, people would always just say, I just took my dog out and ran him on birds and they figured I it I out. Took them hunting. I took him yeah. hunting. And I will say that was in the time period when there were A, more access to ground to hunt on and B, more birds readily available to run dogs on. And yes, I I think that if I had access to unlimited numbers of wild birds, that wild birds would be the way that we would train a majority of the dogs. And what we're trying to do with electronic launchers and the equipment that we have today is to best simulate what a wild bird response would be to a dog and the closest we can get to
1: that the better off the dogs are going to be so and my my take on that right is like anything electronic right gives you the ability to give the appropriate correction or the appropriate positive reinforcement timing 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 is everything and so you can make those a lot easier
2: with that press of the button Mm -hmm. yes you've got that immediate response so well this always happens we always have So many great questions, and we have probably gotten to the point where we're going to have to break for part one, and we will be back tomorrow for part two with more great questions from both Peter Armstrong, DBM, and...
1: The guy with the pink gun.
2: And Cat the dog Trainer.
1: This commercial brought to you by Grape Creek Creek Wines. We're not sponsored, but I'd love to be. I don't even have a YouTube channel. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back in a minute. They've got the whole backyard. And they're like, they in minutes. Fuck, must said it <laughs> sounds like a bear's coming in, but we don't have any bears in North Central Texas.
0: Hey guys, and we are back now for part two of this. Yahwa, our guest Peter Armstrong, DVM, is here to help answer some vet questions as well as share experience. He's an avid bird hunter, and he's got some really nice dogs. I bred and trained them in all the things. So that was a compliment for me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Okay.
2: So speaking of questions, let's get this one started off with a really good question from Michelle Clemens. Why can't we get a CHV vaccine approved in the U S from what I hear? It's doing a great job in Europe. And for those of you that may not know what is CHV it's called it's Canine herpes virus. Canine yeah,
1: herpes virus. So the typical problem we see with that right, is going to be fading puppy syndrome um, most commonly. So it's dogs that are exposed to that. And the first the first time they're exposed to that, and then we see those puppies usually from three to five to up to two to three weeks old. Two to three days old to up to seven, ugh, up to three weeks old, we see the problems with it. Why, why up to three weeks? Um, I think that's probably more related just either exposure time or or the problem that temperature is maybe not regulated. Set, yeah. it, it the
2: temperature thing yeah, is what time. we've experienced yeah. and yeah. seen. So
1: those puppies are getting out, moving around a little bit
0: more. So definitely is a... You get um, a little viral thing and a fever spikes and the fever kills
1: the virus. Well, if you can't spike a fever, you can't kill the virus. Yeah. So um, my guess would be it's all FDA related. Um, so most vaccines that work really well in other countries, we don't get here because of the FDA. So the money that it takes um the and then a drug company's perceived you know money they can make back off of that product um is really difficult and so um we work with a lot of breeding dogs um and we see this as a is a pretty serious problem for a lot of people Um and it can be really detrimental to the entire litter Um, because it's usually a day or two or three before you realize what's going on. We have all these puppies that are dying. And And there's
2: very little that you can do other other than some supportive care.
1: And then the temperature changes. And and it's all related to just symptomatic care and hoping that they make it through it. So it's a really tough, tough virus. And unfortunately, um, drug companies chase the dollars i mean that's just the way that deal works and
2: so they look at it from a sense that there's not enough demand for it mm-hmm. to be approved in the u.s yeah. to and the good thing about
1: herpes is once a female dog is exposed to herpes has a litter that has this problem She's going to be good for the rest of the litter. She's essentially She's going to be vaccinated. producing
2: antibodies yep. that she's passing on to those puppies. Yep. So it's first-time litters with moms yep. that haven't necessarily. Especially dogs
1: brought into new kennels or new situations. And yeah, We actually
0: experienced this firsthand, and it was horrible. And if you follow us and have for a few years, you saw we posted the story and as much information to educate as we could. And in that process of learning that, I mean, I think the statistic we saw was Upwards of 70% of dogs have actually been exposed to CHV-1 is the...
2: Because uh, it's passed along in community-type environments. So dogs that have been boarded, trained, gone to hunt tests, gone to hunt... Dog shows, shows whatever, um, yeah. Even just gone to the vet for routine care, there's the potential that they've been exposed. care, so,
0: yep, dog up, parks. Yep. yep. All cool. the places dogs go. Yeah.
2: Yes, all the places dogs go. Oh.
0: Speaking of dog parks, I'm just going to throw this one out there because I try and educate as often as I can. We drove past a dog park today and don't take young puppies to a dog park. Make sure they're 100% fully vaccinated prior to doing so. Yes. They're cesspools.
2: Yes. They're a very good place to pick up lots of things. Okay. This is a good question from Facebook from Nathan Dean. Nine-month-old DSP, and he didn't have a ton of exposure as a younger puppy with other dogs. So I think that has made him get overly excited when he sees other dogs. He plays a little rough with them. Any suggestions on how to calm his reactions to new dogs and new people as well?
0: So I'm going to throw this out there because I'm a big advocate for this. And everything is genetic. And a lot of people make... um I don't want to say excuses because excuses is a harsh word, but excuses for this didn't happen or this happened or whatever. And long and short of it is your dog is predisposed via genetics and they're going to have those temperaments or personalities. So I'm getting at the fact that it's not something that you did or didn't do. Let's start with that. Next. How to work through it. Can you socialize I, about I'm that? I'm going to
2: actually disagree with Ethan. This is going to be interesting. Okay. And maybe you Bring just it. maybe you just didn't hear List. the question in the same the sense that I did. Okay, let's go. So, nine-month-old GSP didn't have a ton of exposure as a younger puppy with other dogs. So, it sounds like potentially a socialization thing where the dog didn't just have the opportunity to learn how to properly play. And it sounds like he's just truly playing and getting excited with other dogs and other dogs sometimes don't see that exuberance as play. And some dogs don't necessarily read other dogs body language properly, especially if they really haven't had exposure. Um, that can happen too sometimes if puppies are taken away from their mothers too young because mothers, mother dogs really teach them those cues of, Hey, I'm kind of giving you this little stiffness. That's a sign that you need to back off. That's a sign that, hey, I'm not actually enjoying this play anymore. Pinning their ears, standing real tall. Those things, and people don't always recognize those as signs that the dogs are saying, hey, this is too much. I want you to to back off for a little bit. And we don't necessarily see that. Those dogs that haven't had a lot of exposure don't recognize those signs either. And so they keep picking, they keep picking, they keep picking. Their owners keep letting them play like that. And then a dog fight can happen. So are there genetic factors that can go into a dog's tendency to be more aggressive? Yes. But I think that socialization is also very important for a dog to understand what is a proper way to interact with other dogs And other people, because it says that they get overly excited with people as well, which is dogs. I mean, new, exciting situations get them really excited.
1: So, how would that person then socialize or expose that dog at nine months old? How would they expose those dogs to those things to set that up for success? That's
2: where Ethan was going with what he could talk about with suggestions to help now.
0: And I 100% do not disagree that there is socialization aspects into dogs. But the fact that the dog acts this way with both people and other dogs is where I was going with the fact that, I mean, the dog is probably genetically predisposed to being squirrely and having that excitable personality. And yes, training can help with this. Things like, depending on where the situation is at, uh, place training is our big go-to with excitable dogs. So you can take the excitement level down by saying... You're going to stay over here until we see you come off of the 11 down into the manageable level. And you can see it. It's very, very plain. The timing takes different for different dogs. But we say, go kennel because we have company coming over. Bing bong. Normally, dogs are jumping, going ballistic. Your dog's over here. (laughs) Excited, but... Dancing
2: around on their dog, bed, but they're contained. They're not jumping on anyone.
0: Yeah, they, they don't have the ability to. And then you see... 10-15 minutes in they've kind of relaxed then come meet everybody and you've kind of eliminated that super exciting time period so that you can help to diminish the naughty behaviors that come with that level of excitement now as far as meeting other dogs i mean you have to kind of police both sides of that so you're saying to the dog that's getting overly excited yours in this case hey you need to calm down a little bit and that place training or Even just heel work or some level of obedience can play into that where you're saying, you have to sit and stay here. And it's going to be difficult because they're excited and they want to go. But you doing your due diligence at this stage in the game is going to help you work through your nine-month-old so that when they're a two-year-old, you're not going, oh, it's just the puppy in them. You're saying, I have a well-behaved two-year-old dog. So,
1: Agreed. Like it.
2: Look, I can agree with him too. I can disagree. Cat's initial agree.
1: answer was better, though. I think for the record, Cat's <laughs> initial answer was better.
0: <laughs> there there are all aspects of this, uh, one of which is socialization, one of which is predisposition to having different personalities. So,
2: And if you missed the boat on the early stages of socialization, you can continue working on socialization and all of that obedience to help with some of these issues you're having.
0: Now. It's a really good question. It's one of the first ones that I believe in all of these in a very long time that we've not 100% agreed, so.
2: Good job. But you know, I've I lived
0: that
1: with, so I have an English Cocker Spaniel, and he is really excited about everybody he meets. And so for him. Do you think it was a lack of socialization? No, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> no. It's, it's probably more genetic. No, thank you. <laughs> you bet, you bet. You. Um,
2: so Peter really liked my answer, but he agrees with Ethan. For this Thanks. one specific
1: dog. Um, <laughs> but for him, that's a big thing, is he's currently asleep on his dog bed over there. For him, is that, I don't break this dog bed and I do, I get in trouble for that. And for him, he can wiggle and shake and be all excited for
2: it. But then he can calm down. But
1: he can calm down and he can relax because he's got that place where he knows that this is, if somebody wants to come pet me, they come to me. If another dog wants to come up to me, regardless of what I want to do, I stay on my bed and that's how that goes. Absolutely.
2: So this is a really good question as well for Peter from Jack Harrison Survival on Instagram. How dangerous is not medicating for heartworm?
1: So I practiced in South Louisiana um, and then came to Texas. Um, we I probably worked in a really busy practice. Um, at least one of the doctors in the practice every single day is, every single day diagnosed heartworm disease. I mean that's how big it prevalent was. it was in that area yeah. for sure. Um and so I think it really depends on your area. Um if you live, you know, in Montana, it may not ever be an issue for you. Um but I will tell you I see um, I had the other day, which I don't consider very, very prevalent for it. I diagnosed a dog the other day that or tr- worked on a dog the other day that was eight months old. that was already heartworm positive. Ooh. So testing wise, that means that dog got infected between birth and two months of age. Um, and so that's, yeah, yeah. so, um, that's a big deal. I mean, I, I so I think treating uh, it can be dangerous, um, dogs that I used to see that got really, really sick were dogs that we, you know, got infected and got reinfected and got reinfected. Um, prevention's cheap. There's a lot of products. There's a lot of generic products. There's a lot of good. And and we've had this discussion before. I mean, um, a lot of people like generic ivermectin type products. Um, the problem with those is consistency and, uh, you know, you know, a lot of people will mix those with like a propylene glycol type product or something like that. So consistency mixing and giving the proper dose are always a concern. Um, the big companies, regardless of who they are or, or what you use, most of those companies have a guarantee and will stand behind their product. And If your dog gets heartworm, heartworms on that prevention, they'll pay to treat it. So um, I think that's a big thing, right? Is how much, you know, for the cost of it, I think the dog's, um, and to watch dogs die from congestive heart failure secondary to um, heart disease is tough, right? I mean, Especially because you go, "This was these dogs are so ex- well." It's a typically a three or four year old, five year old dog that was one thousand percent treatable. Excuse me, preventable. And then you get to the point that well, we just never did anything, and now we can't do anything about this because the burden of worms inside of the heart is mm. too much. Mm. Yeah, and. So,
2: my family's saying is uh an ounce of preventative is more valuable than a pound of cure so for sure definitely with our dogs especially and there's a
1: bunch of really good products i mean monthly tablets um there's injectable form that lasts up to 12 months now i mean you have literally no excuse to i couldn't remember you know what i mean and i'm the worst the only reason i remember to give my heartworm preventions is because we're having this today and I should have given it January 1st and I still haven't given it. So I'm the absolute worst person in the entire world um, to give my dog's heartworm prevention. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I know I should be doing it. It's, it's just remembering to do it. So some of those uh, month or, you know, six month or 12 month injections are really good products too. Yeah. Yes.
2: The shoemaker's children have no shoes. The veterinarian's dogs Correct. miss their vaccinations. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um
0: uh, Sure.
2: I think this is a really good question as well for Peter, from Wild Rosie underscore the Aussie. I would imagine this is an Aussie.
0: huh. from Australia. We actually, I mean, second to the United States, Australia. Woohoo! There you are. Shout out to y'all. Hit the like button, all you Aussies.
2: Because we get a lot of. What are
0: we going he- bird hunting in Australia? I I want to go hunt some uh, stubble stubble quail. That's what they call stubble quail
2: yeah we get a lot of people following us from australia which is awesome so we got a mild dysplasia report back from ofa on our two-year-old any chances it changes
1: so do do you want to talk about hips this is a good time to talk about hips. let's
2: talk about hips
1: okay so um there's two types of testing um for hips Um, and this may, may or may not sit well with people or not. So what Ethan and Kat have come down to get some, uh, what we call pin hip evaluations done. So, um, it's one of the certifications that I have to do pin hip certifications. And so there's two types, pin hip and OFA, um, pin hip is a subjective, um, reading, um, meaning that we take x-rays. Um, we take what we call a VD view um, of those hips. We send them in. They go to three radiologists. Those three radiologists read those, pin hip, those OFAs and they give a rating. That can only be done after the age of 24 months. Yep. Um, you can have preliminaries done beforehand. Um, and then the other rating would be PINHIP. So pin hip can be done at 16 weeks. It is um, not subjective. It's objective. Um, we take a series of three views. We use the same view that OFA uses um, so a lot of times we use those and we get those dogs OFA certified if they're of that age. Um, we then take a compression view where we actually push those balls all the way into the hip socket to show how deep they can sit. And then we use a distractor that actually sits, um, on the dog. And I'm hoping we can get some video of this. We plan to. So that we can right. show, show what this looks like, but, and then get a, a look of what the, of the distance that those hips come out of the socket. Everything has some movement. There's a ligament that holds that ball into that socket. Um, And so then that is a measurement. And then that's all based off a breed standard of where that correlates to risk for dysplasia. Um, So I do both of these testings. I mean, I think they both have their place. Um, I think um, both of them are geared towards what consumer knows anything about them, right? If nobody knows what pin hip is, then it's hard to say, well, my dog's pin hip is a 0.24 and a 0.28, you know, because people don't know that. But um, OFA is definitely the easier one to do. Um, just any veterinarian can take those and send those in. Um, and then the more common one that's done. Um, so they were given as mild dysplastic, mildly yes. dysplastic. Um, so mildly dysplastic, I mean, you know, it's going to be, there's a risk for dysplasia. Um, I don't know, did we say how old we were? Two years old. Two years old. Um, there's the chance that those hips continue to get worse over over the age of that dog. Um, there's also a chance that those those hips stay the same. Um, any chance they get better? Not going to get any better. No, they're um, not going to improve. But um, I mean, I theoretically, I mean, I guess you could have different views on your X-rays or things like that. But um, overall, I mean. So, again, let's go back to what we talked Do about. some, like,
0: stem cell injections and in the head sure, or something. For sure,
1: for sure. But I think a dog like that, Miley Dysplastic, is a good dog. We talk about chondroitin. And, um, you know, I try to remember the like, Dasiquin is the product that we use all the time. So, cool. um, so, one of those products, you know, chondroitin and um, Closamine products to try to help those joints. I think is a really good product to use.
2: They're really well lubricated and cushioned mm-hmm. so that even though
0: there's some yeah, mycosplasia.
1: Yeah. Right. So let's do everything we can to deal with this as, as well as possible.
0: Now, what about, um, with our old man who's sore and arthritic and everything else you have us using Attaquan. Is there
1: a place for this or is that something? um, probably at this age. Um, so Attaquan is an injection that we use in dogs that typically decreases um the inflammation in the joint increases synovial fluid and decreases some of the inflammatory responses Um, so a lot of times um a dog once we're showing signs of that we'll use um, these older dogs we use it quite frequently to start them in the hunting season um just gives them a little bit better they handle the, the breakdown a little bit so
2: easier. this dog that's only
1: two and I, probably
2: doesn't show any symptoms of having I would pain start that
1: dog chondroitin, yep. and that's probably all i'll do at this point and monitor and you and know and, if
2: down the road that dog ends up having some discomfort and stiffness and, and soreness uh, there's a
1: possibility adaquan's a possibility stem cells a possibility um i was no i mean those kind of are do things do. that are that are doable i mean so all those are possibilities. Good answer. Yeah. Good question.
2: So next question. Uh, I'm going to skip back to one for, for the trainers here. Give Peter a break again. Have some more wine. First of all, I think this is a good one from Brian J. Laylor. Sorry if I butchered that. First of all, he says, thanks for all the resources and info you guys provide. You're welcome, we appreciate your questions, we appreciate your feedback and your support. So, on to the question. How to stop long chase on hens without pigeons? Recall's good in training, but when birds fly, whistle, vibrate, and low to medium stim is ignored. The two-year-old GSP in Iowa, they joined a preserve for more bird training. So I hope I asked those in the right order, because I don't know which order it was in, but that seemed the most logical order to ask that question in.
0: Okay, so how to stop- Long chases. Long chases, with and, and you don't On have access to pigeons. basically hens
2: that aren't getting shot. So. Yeah,
0: birds that aren't shot, even roosters that you shoot, you miss. I mean, I don't miss, but- I'm... Watch
2: some of his videos, yeah. he misses.
0: I think you'll edit those misses out, but I've seen some of those misses. (laughs) They really happen. So when you shoot, you miss, bird flies away, um, or it's a hen, whatever. Uh, You said teaching this without pigeons, and this isn't actually something that I would teach necessarily with pigeons, but with any bird. A strong recall, which in your second part sounds like that you are lacking in that department. Um,
2: Sounds like your dog probably has a start to understanding, a start to the conditioning, but we like to say we need the dog to be proofed with the collar, which means a full understanding, which allows you to use more stimulation and have the desired response. If the dog truly understands what the collar means, Mm -hmm. how to shut off that stimulation by doing something, recalling, then you can use more stimulation to get that response. If they're ignoring medium levels of stimulation, that's because their adrenaline is pumping and they are completely distracted and focused on that bird and you're not getting through to them on vibrate or mild medium levels of
0: stimulation. No, we're gonna use the lowest level for any given training situation. But when you've got a dog chasing that um, bird, it's exciting. And the levels are gonna to have to go up because the level of excitement is higher. We've got to, you know, get the volume up basically high enough so that it can be heard. So the, um, last part of that. It just,
2: the end of that was they joined a preserve <laughs> for more bird training. I don't know if there was more to that or yeah. not. Cause... Well,
0: joining a preserve for more bird training is great. The, um, I will say that, um, I've heard people use the, I've heard people say, um, all birds are good and bird exposure is good and there's no such thing as bad bird exposure, which I all disagree All birds with. are created
2: equal. Yeah,
0: it's just not the case. So you have, to, uh, you have to pay attention at your preserve with how things are happening. If you're going to spend a lot of time at the preserve and you ultimately want to be able to hunt wild birds, you need to have a preserve that's letting the birds go so that the birds are wildish. If they're dizzying them or tucking them or doing those things... Um, Those could eventually cause problems. If you see that your dog is learning naughty habits at the preserve, I would knock that back just a little bit. If your goal is to hunt wild birds, if your goal is to hunt preserved birds, let them do whatever they want. Um,
2: Well, not whatever they want. Not whatever they want.
0: But I mean, as you're hunting, you're not going to be creating problems for wild birds because you're never going to hunt them. So I would assume most people want to hunt wild birds. Yeah, and
2: you're in Iowa. There's wild birds in Iowa. So Uh, you're going to want to get on wild birds. So Basically... The answer to your question is
0: color conditioning, color conditioning to like recall it needs work.
2: sounds like it needs a little more work, um, a little more proofing. But we definitely appreciate you thanking us for our resources and we appreciate you guys and the fact that we're doing all of these YouTube videos and creating all these free resources. Um, we love educating people. We love help telling people what we've learned from our experiences so maybe they don't make the same mistakes we did. Back in the day, um, we but
0: made
1: he some mistakes. Made, made we, mistakes.
2: We made, back we, in made
1: the day. A, we made a lot of mistakes. Can right? we do a whole episode on that? I mean, on I, all the
2: mistakes I, we made. I mean, just
1: the things I've seen. Right, we've been there from the beginning, right? Yeah. The things that have happened.
2: Oh yeah, we're gonna do a video on the beeper collar with Nix from Brewster. <laughs>
1: <laughs> little throwback. Yeah. yeah. So, um,
0: guys, we've got a Patreon uh, community set up, and there is a tier just for y'all that want to support. Our YouTube channel and these videos that we put out—you go in there, you throw a little money in the kitty. It helps us to continue to make more videos just like this. So
2: that's our little caveat on that. Now it's time for some fun questions,
1: and we all
2: can be involved hey, in that. Question. Oh, you get a question.
1: Let's uh, let's just make a third video. Into a third video, because we're we're Timeless. So. Hey One more time, this uh, video is brought to you by an empty bottle of Grape Creek wine. It's uh, not empty yet. We'll bl- Bellissimo was our uh, choice for the night. And so we will. It's uh, delicious. It is pretty good. So uh, Texas wine's right there. So.
2: And we're having so much fun answering your questions. Yeah, for we're sure. going to do a part three. We'll do a
1: Round part three. three.
0: Here we come.
2: Okay, well, part three requires another bottle of wine. So
1: uh, we'll start around the beginning this time. This time brought to you by uh, Grape Creek Wines. Uh, Mosaic is actually a really good wine. Oh, oh
2: we're, we're changing flavors. That means I'm going to have to finish this off before I add to Switching it.
0: Switching it up. Mosaic, here we come. Yawa, part three, guys. Thanks for watching. We're here to answer your questions.
2: And I'm gonna start this off with a few fun questions because we've been really serious asking some really great questions about dog training, about, hi puppy, (laughs) Uh, about dog training, veterinarian stuff. So here's a fun one.
0: Real serious vet stuff.
2: Why 20 gauge, three inch versus 12 gauge, two and three quarter inch for actual hunting. Personal preference or science, laugh out loud, from Andrew Holtzman on Instagram.
0: All right, Andrew. So the big thing is I shoot a fair amount and I don't like 12 gauges. I just don't. So I carry a 20 gauge and I do at the same time want to pack as big a punch as I can. Late season birds. um, Or on bigger birds. If we're goose hunting or something like that. Yep, absolutely. Bigger birds. So... Um that's where the three inchers are gonna come in. Most of the hunting that I would do early season even, I shoot two and three quarter inch out of my 20, early season pheasants, all season quail, all season any species of grouse, I'm shooting a two and three quarter inch shell. I've actually had people tell me on the science aspect of things that you're saying that a three inch 20 gauge shell does not pattern or the crap. Now, I had another video out that talked about patterning the shotgun, and I feel, and then I was explained that I need to shoot another video about if I'm actually aiming where I'm pointing and something. So, I'm I'm going to be doing that video here shortly. But um, as far as the science is concerned, I'm going bigger shell, as much as I can pack out of the 20 in those Because a 20 season, is a
2: personal preference.
0: 20 is a personal preference. Have our goose videos gone up yet? Yeah. No, uh, yeah. not ours. No, supposed Ethan's to just went up. Just is. Uh, our goose video is coming up here shortly. Do we have yes. videos of you killing geese with a 20 gauge? Or Did, yeah, I... did I shoot
1: yeah. your birds for you? <laughs> no, this, he
2: actually shot some birds in this last video. <laughs> yeah, I just good.
1: didn't know if the 12 or 20 made a difference on the, you know. But we did, shoot the them, we did shoot them pretty close, so. Yeah. Just need one pellet. Yep,
0: one pellet in the eye. Yep. This is a great
2: question now for all of us to become involved in, and especially since we're talking about shooting and guns and all the things. So, from... Upland birds, underscore, and underscore, I'm assuming it's waterfall, because it goes dot, dot, dot. So, Uplands and waterfall, what two guns would you take on a cross-country Upland waterfall hunting trip? Only two.
1: What would I, on an Upland waterfowl.
2: So, I'm assuming you're going Upland and waterfall hunting, so you get to take
1: two guns. I really like, for Upland, my Beretta A400, too. So, mine's not pink. Um, I don't lose my gun, so I don't need to paint it pink. Um, but what, what gauge is it? Tw- my twenty gauge. Okay. Yeah, no, the twenty oh, gauge drop one. Oh, okay. That's really lightweight gun, easy to shoot, and then
2: and haul around in the field mm-hmm. all
1: day. And then for uh, waterfowl, I shoot a Winchester SX three all day long, every day. Twelve gauge. Twelve gauge.
0: Yeah, with your anaconda choke in there. Anaconda choke. My anaconda. It is don't...
1: dangerous. So, yeah, that's that's Kill my some gun. With it. That is my gun of choice. All right, cat.
2: Well, I used to have an. A400 Explore, and then my husband took it and turned it pink, so I had to get my own, but I got an A400 XL, and it's beautiful and blue, and I have enjoyed shooting that as well, um, and I've used that for our goose hunts as well as our upland hunts. Now, for training, and I'm going to throw this out there because I train a lot more than I even get to hunt, so I like shooting my Beretta 20-gauge Silver Pigeon break open um, because when I'm handling dogs and training, I need that gun to be safe um, as well as it can balance on my shoulder while I'm using both hands. Where when you've got that semi-automatic, you can't balance it, and then you're worried about having an extra shell in there and just safety and stuff if you're laying it down on the ground and a dog's running over it. So break open gun, the Beretta, both in 20 gauge, um, and then I.
1: <laughs> I hope the video catches the dog on the fireplace back there. <laughs> Um, can,
2: can you see the puppy on the fireplace? There's a
1: shooter in the background and a shooter puppy in the background, and they're just hanging out. And to be fair, wondering he's a puppy. Wondering why we've been talking for this long, so what are you doing, buddy? All right, and
0: for me, on my trip, my two guns are going to be my A400 Explorer in 20, the pink gun auto, and then the pink gun break open, which is a um, Beretta 686. Silver pigeon and the silver pigeon 20 gauge. I would say that I am a traditionalist when it comes to if I'm gonna hunt a quail or grouse, oh, I'm going he wants to a gentleman's gun. My gentleman's gun, which is a little
2: hoity toity over, I like to over birds. and under.
0: Yep. Well, when you're as good a shot as I am, you <laughs> only need two shots. You only need two shots. You only need that there. Yeah, but I'm when serious. I'm chasing pheasants, I've got a click, I've got a boom boom, you know, swear word boom. Watch it fly away. You know, it's just how it works. So Yeah.
1: Okay.
2: Good question. Good questions. I like this one. I think it's also uh, interesting slash kind of funny question. Where is
0: everybody saw in that one video? Click. Swear word. A bunch of swear beep. words. Yeah. Beep, beep, beep.
2: From Andrew Hoxman again on Instagram. Do the flight feathers grow back on the pigeons after you pull them oh, yeah. for training a single dog? How many... I don't know what the rest oh, of that question okay. was.
0: So, do the flight how feathers... How many shoes? How many shoes? Meatloaf. So, do the flight feathers grow... <laughs> what are y'all talking about?
2: <laughs> you don't want to know. It'll know. be another segue Any, video. Anybody that
0: recognizes the, the... Put it
2: in the comments. Put it and in the comments. we'll send you something really fun.
0: <laughs> Special prize to anybody that can comment below the reference of how many shoes I'm ready meatloaf. for a mosaic. So... As far as do the flight feathers grow back? If you pull flight feathers on a pigeon or any other bird, yes, they will grow back. They take a fair amount of time to grow back. But if I'm using, uh, uh, one of those pigeons for a bird introduction, most of the time the bird doesn't make it through his dispatch after the end of that. I mean, we want a bird that flaps around so the dog can get used to that. But at the same time, um, we're not going to go, Hey, see if you can survive. It's just. Okay, you've, you've done your job. You've
2: served your purpose. We're training hunting dogs, bird dogs. We need live birds to be able to do that. Yes.
0: Now, all of that being said, if we get new homing birds, whether, and then they're mature birds, um, I will pull flight feathers on one wing and I'll pitch them in the homing coop so they get used to living there and they don't fly with the rest of the birds. Um, then by the time their flight feathers grow back, which is usually three to four weeks and the pigeon guys can correct me on that, but, Um, once they've grown back, they can fly with everybody and they've lived there long enough to start homing homing there. Yes. Yep. They grow back.
2: And I wasn't really sure if there was a second part to the question about for training a single dog, how many, so you'll just have to ask that next week from George Enriquez on Facebook. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. It might've been Jorge, uh, what maintenance do you recommend to keep a GSP's teeth healthy and white over her lifetime? Thank you.
1: So it depends. Um, really, really depends on the dog, the things that chew on, the things they do. Um, so if if there's pretty decent tartar, um, then those dogs may or may not need routine yearly, every other year, every third year, dental cleanings with polishing, just like we do. I mean, that's, that's normal maintenance on teeth. I mean, that's to have really good teeth that really last a long time. Um, I love, there's some good, Greenie makes some good chew toys. Um, Orivet makes some, uh, those are probably my favorite. They've got a, almost toothpaste-based substance in them. Um, and they're a chew
2: they're treat. They're
1: a chew. They're, they're a softer, um, but it's almost like they're Make brushing sure. their teeth every time they do it. I okay. really, 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 really like those. Um, we sell them in our clinic and have a lot of good success with those. those.
0: The, the Orivet ones, or- those
1: little green. Yeah, they get green and a little white kind of cream center. And that center is a kind of a toothpaste-based product. Okay. So I um, really like that product. Um, but I think there's some things. I mean, if you'll brush your dog's teeth, I think that's probably a good thing. Um, there's some additives to water that help. But um, mechanical breaking down is going to be the biggest so cute, biggest thing that helps with that.
2: Dogs that get a lot of bones, treats that they're constantly chewing, they help keep that plaque from really adhering in the first place, I would For imagine. For
1: sure, yep. yep. They're so gonna their break teeth that are going to be
2: less plaquey. Dogs that don't get that, um, I've heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that like a soft dog food, canned food yep. isn't going to be as soft good. Soft
1: dog food, small kibble, all those things kind of contribute to a, a tooth that doesn't get as cleaned as well. Now, um,
0: all of that being said, when you look at bones, uh, I think that it's pretty commonly known at this stage in the game that rawhide is not the best chew bone of choice. Yeah, rawhide would be a no-go. Yeah, so... There are baits. Let's just
2: talk about that for a second. Why rawhides from a vet is a no-go from us is a no-go because um, there is still a market out there for rawhides and I do run into people a lot of times that don't know that rawhides are a no-go. So segue.
0: So the rawhides are typically the leftover garbage chunks of leather skin hide that aren't used for anything else and Um, They are not very digestible. They're processed differently. They're processed differently. But they, and there is good information on Pork Chomp's website. And that's the company that we use their baked chews, um, which I think their statistic is like, don't quote me on this, but it's like a rawhide is somewhere in the vicinity of 60% digestible, which means that 40% of that is not being digested. Where a baked chew or a baked pig skin or whatever skin chew is upwards of 90-something percentile digestible. So, they chew that up. They can actually digest it. And they don't have all of this extra crap there. Now, the other side of that is they get too big of a chunk. It can get stuck in the intestines. It can get stuck in the opening of their stomach. It can cause a blockage and a problem. Yeah, and definitely. I've had to
1: go get those out of dogs before, for sure.
2: Yeah. And the... Not only is having to go after them a problem, people don't always recognize what's going on. And it's a very time sensitive problem. And yeah. you can lose your dog from that.
0: So, a dog uh, or lots of bowel. I mean. And
2: then once you've got a dog with a shortened intestine, you've got a lot of other issues because they're not able to absorb the nutrients from food that they need, um, as well as like stool issues and stuff for the life of your dog. So, getting a more uh, digestible treat to help with cleaning of those teeth would be a better recommendation.
0: So, like pork chomps, they'll be available on our website here soon. And then the other side of it is um, there are raw bones. We get the question about raw bones pretty – so, like a chunk of a femur of a cow. Um, the marrow in that's really good. Do you have anything to say about that? I, I mean, think as
1: long as they're monitored well enough that they're not splintering those. I mean, I think anything, right, with a chew toy needs to be monitored. That's – I mean – it's like a toddler. I wouldn't give them something without monitoring what they're doing. Yeah, so. because
2: any of those bones and chews and things, they can whittle down, whittle down, work yep. on, work on until it's a choking hazard at that yep, point. Yep, and then sure. it gets lodged in their throat. And I just hit my microphone. So, so sorry about the feedback on that. Mic check. <laughs> and, um, you know, they can choke and, uh, you know, pass away as well in a yep. situation like that. So anytime our dogs are chewing on anything that's um, even like, a good chew bone, You like
1: antler chews? Antlers or yeah, like I those pet stages, yeah. compressed wood sticks. They're just expensive. That's, they are. They're, really expensive. they're expensive. <laughs> um,
2: but again, when we talk about expenses of some of these products of heartworm preventative and chew toys that are a better option than rawhide and things like that, yes, they're expensive. But when we're looking at the dogs that are a part of our family, a part of our breeding program, uh, that we've invested lots and lots of time and money and effort and energy into, it's a very small amount of money to
0: So what's it give like, them. Yeah, proper What's an antler to cost, like
1: fifteen bucks, twenty yeah. bucks or something yeah, like that? Yeah, versus a dental that depending on rural versus you know, non rural metropolitan area, anywhere from three hundred bucks to fifteen hundred dollars two thousand dollars i mean so so.
0: twenty dollar two is probably
1: yep Yep.
2: and but yes but then when you're looking at that antler versus the price of those rawhides there's even a cheaper option you can
0: get a ten dollar twenty pack of rawhide bones or something yes
2: but like we talked about that's not always the best option so cheap isn't always best so
1: i feel like we're going to be come after by the rawhide companies at this point but i don't care you know we don't recommend rawhides, you know?
2: <laughs> Rawhide,
1: no. <Nope. laughs> Put a big red X here, right? Right here.
0: Rawhide.
2: <laughs> so, uh, that was a great question. That was about teeth and that kind of segued and segued and segued into next other question. things. So, next question. Uh, this is a good question on Facebook. Facebook, I have another glass of wine. Mark W. Cross, what do you think is the hardest challenge, part of any NAVDA test, and how do you approach it to get through it? Well, this is a good question. However, dogs are so different. There's not a good answer. There's not a good answer because dogs... It's not a
1: direct answer. The question is, what's the hardest part of an AVDA test? Yes. Like For me, the hardest part is getting my dogs to eat and, and cat to run my dogs in an AVDA test. <laughs> that transport
2: is really I, I mean tough mean, cat. From Texas. I mean cat. <laughs> so... The thing to remember is all dogs are different. And so what one dog's weakness could be another dog's strength. And what I mean by that is I've had dogs that are exceptional field dogs, but struggle in some of that independence and oh,
0: people like our dogs. So let's give, let's give direct ex- okay. examples, right? Okay. So Nick's. Super duck searcher, natural, yes. like, took like half a dozen times and he no, was No, like duck... the
2: first time I put him in the water with a duck, he chased it for 30 minutes. Yeah, And that was a so... duck chase, not a search, but that was the very beginning. And from then on, I never struggled with teaching duck searches. Next, um,
0: duck search monster.
2: Duck search monster. He has a lot of independence, which is important when you're looking at the duck search side of things. But then when you're looking at some of the other parts of the test, which steadiness is all obedience, then... and. Don't get me wrong, he's a very nice dog, but he could have a little more obedience and cooperation at times. The duck search for me. was
0: easy. The steadiness portion was harder for
2: him. It was harder, yes.
0: Yep. And then we've got Shooter, who is the exact opposite of that. The deck, he's over there. He's 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 outside. He got left out. So shooter is the exact opposite of that. And the duck search for him was more difficult because he lacks the independence required. Super
2: cooperative looking for direction. Yep. And then
0: the field portion, fours across the board. Easy. He went six for six in his master hunter test because it was. I can stand here and I can do this and I won't question anything. I'm I happy can point it 60
1: yards. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter beautiful.
2: Yes. yes. Nyx, it took like 15 tests to get his Master Hunter test. Actually, I think it was 12, but it was still it a was lot 12. more than six. Yeah. Because um, he's not as obedient and cooperative, um, more independent.
0: So it's a good question. And the answer is it's going to depend on the dog.
2: And it's important to be honest with yourself about what your dog is what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. And every dog has a strength. Every dog has a weakness. No dog is perfect. That's why we have breeding programs, because we're always trying to improve upon the breed, move in a direction that's going to fit what we're looking for, at least, for a perfect dog, even though we won't actually be able to create that. work always constantly trying to move So you're telling that. me
1: Shooter's not a perfect dog because I was already set that that he was.
2: Shooter's the perfect dog for Peter. <laughs> for Peter. Yeah. There's yeah. a perfect dog out there for everyone. Right, right. Um, but good question. Next question. Pheasant Chaser. I like the name, so I'm going to read this question. From Instagram. I have a 16-week-old Griffon that is off to a great start except he is displaying signs of separation anxiety. Okay. Example. Relentless barking in his crate and consistent messing in his crate while we are at work. And even though he is never in there for more than four hours at a time, his house training seems to be great when we are home trying to train this behavior out of him. But I'm also trying to wrap my head around training my first pointing breed. What are your suggestions and what are your thoughts on bark collars and or medication for an up and coming gun dog if we find no other solution? I don't want a bark collar to interfere with his collar conditioning for training, and I definitely don't want meds to take away his hunting drive. So I'm Excellent throw question.
0: Two two quickies: um, the bark collar won't interfere with his collar conditioning, and two, my jump is never to medication unless it's. I would agree, absolutely. Especially
2: with a four-month-old puppy. I mean, that I think that's sixteen weeks. Yeah. So. Re-
0: realistically, this sounds like a puppy. Um, some puppies are going to be easier than others, but it sounds like a puppy.
2: They, yes. Um, and depending on what your routine is, when you are home, you could be setting your dog up for failure in a sense that if the only time they ever have to be in that crate is when you're gone, then you're making that crate into a punishment, not necessarily a place that they want to be, because that means that you're not around. Now, if they can have some crate time. While you're home. Yeah.
0: How would we, specifically, how would we make the create a better place while we're home? I mean, what can we so do So i So,
1: I'm like the most novice trainer ever. Like, if, if you guys wanted to know what the most novice trainer looked like, this would be this guy right here. He's got oh. a beard. I got a beard, and but that does not mean that I train novice, bird dogs. So. I send all of my dogs for anything if they need to know how to use the bathroom outside, I send to these guys. I mean, that's that's how novice I am. But um, for me, like, I will, I've got a five-month-old puppy right now, and I routinely... Excuse me. Routinely, we'll just put him in his kennel in the evening, even though he's super great to be outside and, and lay down on the dog bed while I watch TV. I will routinely put him in at the end of the day, just in his kennel for hour, two hours after they've had time to run and burn off some energy. Put him in his kennel, let him spend some time there, and then I will get him back out again and let him go back to the dog bed um so that he's getting that time frame where he's put away while I'm home. He's hearing the house noises and those things that happen. So and so important. And and so that he's learning that it's not just a punishment that dad goes to work um, and now he gets to g- get put in his kennel. And so exactly. for me, that's a big, big thing from the most novice dog trainer we've ever met. And that's I think that that comes, what we
2: talk about a lot.
0: Yep. And I think that comes from a, a balance, right? So you, as a bird dog owner, you want to give your dog time, attention, or non-bird dog owner,
1: just a pet owner. You yeah. want to spend time with your dog. And we all home. have
2: to work.
0: Yep, okay. we all have to work.
2: Most of us have to work. And it's tough,
1: right? Because you work, you know, especially winter, we're coming out of winter with a puppy right now. I mean, you work till 5, thirty, six, 6, and it's dark, and so it's hard yeah. to go burn that energy off. Um, it's going to get easier now as we get into springtime, and you can go run that dog for 30, 45 minutes, and then they can kind of just burn that energy so that the next morning, or get up in the morning and go run that energy off, and so that But people also
2: process. feel guilty in a sense that, well, I was at work all day, and they were in their crate all day, so... I don't wanna just put them in their crate now that I'm home and they feel that guilt, but that's what I'm talking about is you're setting your puppy up for failure because there's gonna be times that they need to be able to be crated and that needs to not be in a punishment situation. It needs to be in a
1: And I think that's a great thing, right? Because I'm trying to have a really enjoyable dog because that's at the end of the day, most of us are that way, right? We will hunt 40 days a year if we're lucky, maybe 15 days a year with our dogs. Um And so to be able to have another
2: that, segue question, Sorry. have that
1: dog be livable means that when everybody comes over at Christmas, we can put that dog in a kennel. That dog doesn't make any noise. And it's a it's a fun time with that dog. So learning those things with the house noises and not that this is punishment. But again, I think it's easier as winter gets here. Cause yes. I'm, now that the days get longer, I'm running my dogs every day and they're already more much more enjoyable to bring them in and put them on the couch and let them relax
2: and i think that people jump to labeling puppies barking and having accidents as separation anxiety way too quickly and then every dog has separation anxiety because puppies are puppies and they bark when they're put in a crate Uh, they have accidents because they still don't have fully developed bladders And things that you can do to help with that is I like to have a radio playing or the TV left on or some kind of white noise while we're gone.
0: It's like we do for a kid.
2: (laughs) We've got a little baby, you know, music player that he gets to listen to during nap time or at night as he falls asleep. Um, Having a special treat that they get only when they're going in their crate and then maybe putting a towel over their crate so they can't see what else is going on. And that would be something that you would do while you're there. Okay. I, we're probably at like thirty minutes. No, we're
1: gonna do two more questions. One for Ethan, one for me, and then we'll be done. Yep. How's that sound? It's, I think it sounds perfect. So tough.
2: Oh, it's so tough because okay. This do, we can do three. Thanks. One for you, because, too, Kat. One for you. Yes, two cat. One
0: for you, yes One for each of us and then we'll be out of from
2: here. From Pantana underscore kennels from Instagram. What got you started in
1: Pantana? Pantana. I like it. That's a better name than Standing Stone almost. I like it. It's a pretty good kennel name.
2: What got you... St- he's going to like that, okay, <laughs> no, he's gonna- gonna be reaching out to you for his next dog. She didn't like that, but
1: okay, whatever. No,
2: Peter's going to be reaching out to you for his next dog. Unlikely. name it Pantanas, whatever. <laughs> what got you started in breeding dogs? In particular, what made you choose GSPs as the dogs you wanted to breed?
0: Is this a question for you or me? For you. For me. Ah, for me. Okay, so what got me into breeding dogs um, would be a uh, drive for something better i don't settle and to have the opportunity to take a dog that i absolutely love and try and match it with another dog that i love and make better dogs that's that's the exciting thing for me as far as short hairs go it's um i'm gonna make a long story short i bumped into an old bird dog guy in a previous never
2: makes long story short
0: just saying i'm gonna make this one as short as i can Bumped into a, a bird dog guy in another life as a, a geek squad computer repair man, And he said, you should look at short hairs. And so I did and fell in love with them. Started training dogs. And I've gotten the opportunity to work with a ton of different breeds and just have a uh, spot in my heart for short hairs. I mean, uh, different breeds for every person. And uh, for me, short hairs is the way to go.
2: Because they fit our lifestyle. They fit what what we like to hunt, how we like to hunt, and how we like to live our lives.
1: Absolutely. Even if Daniel Carter makes jokes about Cocker Spaniels, it's fine. It's fine. Pick a,
2: pick a pick side. A side.
1: <laughs> Peter, pick a side. Got both. Are I've got both. I've got both.
2: Right? Best of yep. both worlds, yep. right? Okay, good. So, Peter, I've yes. got a really good one for you. From Andrew underscore Heine on Instagram. Yeah. When... Do you suspect something is stuck in the nose or inhaled versus a cold or allergies? I have a six-month-old puppy, started with a mild runny nose two weeks ago, but now has thick brown mucus and significant congestion, no fever. They're eating and pooping normally, not overly lethargic, and we've been to the vet. They tried Benadryl and a decongestant. They will be back again tomorrow.
1: Yeah, so anytime we have a discharge that has color to it, so brown, green, yellow, pick a gun, I don't care. Um, good white clear discharge really doesn't excite me, but anytime we have color to discharge, I'd get excited about, um, or things that are not resolving over time. You know, anytime we pick up something, you know, say we go run through a new field and we get some kind of allergy, three four days of that. Um, once we're past that, then we got a problem. We need to work into that a little bit and see what's been going on. So. Typically, once we have color or or you know, duration of more than three, or four days, or we have fever or lethargy associated with those, those would be things that I would get excited about.
2: Something that I've typically noticed too with dogs that have something up their nose. They ran through the field, got a stiff piece of weed or something stuck up stuck up their nose, sneezing and like shaking yep. their head, and they just can't clear it because they're trying to get that out of there. So that's typically an indication that maybe they got something up there, whether it's still up there or not um is
1: debatable debatable yep. and that's
2: where you go to a vet and they can
1: yeah and that's nose. the that's just the the real point of that or i just it, it, at that point once we have that duration of time or some color changes and, and that's not let's get back to our vet and let's see what's going on absolutely
2: so last question last question of the night on part three brown dog boon on instagram what attracts you guys to the puppies you choose what qualities can a puppy have that stand out most to you?
0: This was absolutely a perfect question for Cat because, because historically Ethan, speaking, she is the better puppy picker,
1: plain and simple.
2: Oh, should I change my Instagram hashtag to the better puppy picker? You should, <laughs> but
1: but in all honesty, you're like you just document from the day they're born. I mean, you just know those puppies from the second they breathe their fresh yes. breath. So right?
2: we have breeding sheets now. There are times that we pick puppies from litters that we haven't bred. And at that point, I have to rely a lot on the breeder because they have spent the time with those puppies to give me insight. Amen, sister. Yep, to give me insight on what those puppies truly are because the day that I go to pick out a puppy, is not necessarily the whole view of what that puppy is because no, it's a very short window. Those puppies could be more tired that day because, as a breeder, when I'm sending puppies home, I know they've got long car rides to go on that day. So I try and have them a little more extraly worn out that day so that they can make that extra, long car ride. Extra. I'm pretty sure that's a word. We're gonna Google it later as well as they may have a flight later that day with their owners and having a puppy that's a little more worn out makes that travel a little bit easier that transition home to a new owner away from their litter mates a little bit easier. So getting the exact feel of what that puppy is in a very short window of time isn't always easy. So rely heavily on um, those other breeders when we get a puppy from outside of our kennel. Um, Or if you're planning on getting a puppy from us, definitely rely heavily on our input on what those puppies truly are. But when I am picking a puppy and looking at things for our breeding program, um, when we breed dogs in general, um, we're breeding dogs to better the breed. Like Ethan talked about, we're always looking to put two dogs together that are going to create puppies that are going to have characteristics from both genetically. Um, we look at a lot of things. So when I'm picking a puppy from our breeding program, I already know that they're going to be amazing dogs. (laughs) I mean, really I am. I know that those puppies, no matter what are going to have excellent, hunting abilities, great family personalities. And so then I'm just able to look at other aspects of things that as breeders that we're looking at um, adding to our breeding program, I'm going to be looking for personal preference. I personally like dogs with solid heads. Uh, Do I have dogs in my breeding program that don't have completely solid heads? Yes, because these are aesthetics. These are things that can be overlooked for personality and for ability. But if all things are equal, I'm going to look for a puppy that has a solid head. I like pretty ticking on a dog. Do I prefer black dogs over liver dogs? Absolutely not. I prefer pretty dogs over ugly dogs. Um, but we don't produce ugly
1: dogs, though. In in your defense, you've had at least one ugly dog that I'd hunt any day of the week out of behind her. You know what I mean? So
2: Who are you calling ugly? I'm
1: not calling anybody ugly, but I'd hunt behind her any day of the week. So you Are know- you... Who, who, talking, are you ta- I don't know who you're talking about, you're but talking about. I know who you're talking about. I know who he's talking about. I know who he's talking we about. Got, we got one ugly dog. One ugly dog who I would hunt behind any day of the week because ability way out pushes that, and her production right. it. And, way out does that.
2: And even though you say she's ugly, and we all both agree that she's not the best-looking dog that we've ever produced. <laughs> she's so ugly, she's cute, is what I like to say. <laughs> but... um. She still is well put together, and yeah, for
1: isn't sure, isn't yeah. something yeah.
2: that wouldn't be a beneficial part of a breeding program. He's agreeing with me as well, um, but we also look at things so too- much better
1: than part one because we were not agreeing, we were not on the same page. So <laughs> right? This is good. There was Ethan's tension. Now agreeing there was, t- with there was me. tension.
2: No, I'm agreeing with him, something like that. But I also look at the way my breeding program is going. So if I've kept a couple puppies recently for my program that are black and white, I'm probably going to try and pick a puppy that's liver and white so that I don't breed myself into corners.
1: Right, um, because you might you might pass on a black and white dog so that I can keep, keep a, a, liver a liver and white, white dog, dog just because of
2: Because I don't need all black and white dogs in my breeding program. I need to maintain that balance of producing liver and white dogs and black and white dogs and not limiting the breed by only producing black and white dogs. Even though black and white dogs have become a little more of a trend lately, uh, a little more sought after, uh, we don't want to eliminate liver and white shorthairs from the breed because they are important to have in that program as well.
0: If you're interested in more information about the color and the genetics of short hairs, let us know, and we can add it to a later video. Yes. But ultimately, you've gone on a lot of different things as far as what you would pick, but you're you, I like the gist a of it, puppy
2: that is fairly easygoing in the litter, because livability is super important to us. We even, also have- Even
0: the most hunting hunters of the hunter lists- I mean, you're still hunting a pretty small a the the small year. percentage yeah. of the year.
1: Unless you're so,
2: constantly traveling all over the world to be able to hunt constantly the world.
1: the world. Well, and like my puppy is a really good example of this. I have a shooter puppy who was literally not picked. He was the last pick of the litter because he had the least amount of, of patches. That was the so only parameter only I asked the guy him I said, because why, why? of coloration. They, they kill him, And he is the, and maybe the rest of the litter is too. I don't know. But he is the most laid back, relaxed puppy I've ever been around in my entire life. He is shooter times two as far as just livable. How,
2: he's five months old? Five months
1: old. He walks he's here. like he's back there. I know. Back I keep looking back. But there. There he walks in there like there. every night he walks in, gets on the dog bed and goes to sleep. And there's not a peep out of him. Um, he's had one accident in the house. And literally, I got him because his coloring. And he's a beautiful liver tick dog. I yeah. mean, as, as beautiful as he could be. and So
2: So people get really hung up on looks and coloration yep. of the dogs. And that's not always the most important thing. But when I'm looking at a litter, I also look at the calmer puppy out of that litter. Because like I said, I already know they're going to hunt.
0: You, you trust the breeding.
2: I trust the breeding. You yep, trust I a breeder. Hunt. Yes, I'm trusting us.
0: So, well, <laughs> I we've gotten dogs from right. outside right. breedings, yes. but yep. I mean, you're, you're relying on, you're, you're trusting that a breeding that you're looking at is going to produce the dog that you're looking for. And then from there, you trust the breeder's opinion on which one's personality is going to best fit you. Yes. Whether that's you or another breeder. And
2: you just have to be honest with yourself and what you're looking for.
0: And when they look for and they make recommendations or you make recommendations based on, I think trust these them. dogs yeah. fit this.
1: Trust I think that's a big thing too. Like talking to your breeder. Like, if I call you and say, "Well, well Ethan, Cat, I I guide, you know, two hundred days a year or hundred days a year."
2: I want to give you the puppy that's a correct little more versus hard charging. you know my
1: realistic and having that honest conversation with your breeder and saying, "If I'm honest with you, I'm going to hunt ten days a year. If I'm lucky." My job, allow me to hunt 10 days a year. I want a dog, when I go to, go that's to gonna hunt... it's going to be that shooter puppy I want that goes him to shut down But then when I go hunting, he's like a light switch and he will hunt for 10 hours a day. And we have a great time hunting sharp-tailed grouse because that's all we do is 10 days a year. As long as you're honest with that and, and you can talk. And so, so people like Ethan Cat can say, well, this dog is really well... You know, the breed. this breeding is really suited for this. You know, let's wait one more breeding to the, our next litter and say, this is the dog that's gonna be better for you. For this dog is gonna be yes. super livable, you're gonna do all the hunting you want to, because obviously we're not breeding dogs that don't that hunt. Don't hunt yeah. But this dog's gonna be super livable versus this dog. If you're hunting 150 days out of the year, this dog is gonna tear it up for you. So right. I think that's a,
2: Very having true. that
1: conversation and knowing what you're picking and when you're placing yourself in, into a litter, I think is important too.
2: 100%. So, so
1: trust your breeding, trust your breeder. And then
2: be honest with yourself on what you really want, um, and try and overlook just the coloration and the look of the dog, so that you can get the personality and the hunting. And that ability was that my you
1: really point wanted. about that female: was that some of the best hunting you could do is behind her, and you would, if you put ten females against her, she would be. Most
2: people probably would wouldn't
1: pick not her. pick her, but she would be the best hunting dog you would hunt behind.
0: So, yeah. Thanks everybody for watching. I'm the guy with the pink gun. Cat the dog
2: trainer. Or the Perfect Puppy Picker.
0: Perfect Puppy Picker? Perfect Puppy. That's an alliteration. (laughs) (laughs) And And thank you,
1: Armstrong DBM, I think is my Instagram. (laughs) 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 Follow me now if
0: you work for Great Peak Wines. (laughs) Yeah, buddy. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we will catch you next week.